Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Back when I was in high school, I was a pretty cool dude. At least I thought I was. Um, Yeah, uh, I did my best to try and fit in, you know, with the cool kids in high school. That's me repping a a nice mustache-goatee combo at a high school basketball game, Go Blue Devils. I didn't realize at the time that my shirt was actually on backwards uh, for the entirety of that game. (laughs) No one told me. I tried all sorts of things to to be cool in high school, you know, to to, to make it. Uh, I used hand gestures that I thought were cool, you know. Uh, Listen to all the coolest music. That's me and my friend Ben Wood rocking out to one of the coolest bands. And I thought that maybe if I did all these things, well, yeah, maybe I would fall in with the popular crowd in high school. You know? And then, then maybe I'd really matter. But at the end of the day, I was just a goofy high school kid with I mean, some really bad hair. I mean, that's just, just not good. Um, but you can tell, looking at the kid in the center of those three photos, I mean, he really did think that you know, he was... He was somebody. And he thought that being somebody had something to do with your status in high school, right? What, what other people thought about you. What I was sorting through at the time uh, in high school was pride, right? Self-esteem, uh, how one estimates themselves. And it doesn't end in high school, right? We actually continue to do this, all of us do even if we do it unconsciously. But we all uh, develop some basis for our worth in the world, and then we live by it. What is the basis of your worth? There's an article uh, from Psychology Today that uh, says this. It says, uh, we might believe that healthy self-worth means taking pride in our achievements, but if value is tied to our accomplishments or self-image, It's built upon a fragile foundation. Because those things, image and and achievements, well, they're subject to change. One bad haircut might be all over for you. Believe me, I would know. (laughs) This is the problem, right, of of pride. And it was the problem in our story today. Ah, I didn't bring my prop, but in the story Bible, in chapter 10, of this novel of the, of the Bible we've been walking through, uh, uh, it covered the first half of 1 Samuel, and its subtitle was this, Standing Tall, Falling Hard. Standing Tall, Falling Hard. Now that's, I think, a comment about Saul in particular, uh, but I told you already, I'm not going to talk about Saul today. But that idea of standing tall, being puffed up, prideful, it's kind of the theme of the book of 1 Samuel, and it's all over the place, that idea. But you know the saying as well, right? The, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. We got a glimpse of this in our text from 1 Samuel chapter 2 from a woman named Hannah. And I want you to listen to her words again. Now she says in this prayer, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. 
Hannah is calling us to ask ourselves, are we being prideful? Are we being puffed up? And what is the basis for our pride? Uh, Is it something that is solid? Or when it is weighed, will it be found lacking? Well, God knows. But Hannah didn't know this about God, at least at the beginning of her story. She had to learn it through the course of her life and through her own struggle with self-esteem. Let me back up and give you Hannah's backstory. Hannah uh, was a woman who was married to a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah was kind of a kind of a righteous dude. He was from the tribe of Levite, and he took a, a pilgrimage every year to Shiloh, where the tabernacle of God was. And he brought Hannah with him, and he'd make sacrifices to the Lord, and he would give Hannah a, a double portion of the sacrifices because he loved her. But there was a problem for Hannah, and the problem was she was childless. And in the ancient world, there was not really a worse fate for a married woman than to be childless. In our culture, in American culture, we think of marriage, I think, uh, primarily in terms of companionship, that that's kind of the highest good of what marriage is about. But in the ancient Near East, it was all about childbearing, and especially birthing sons so you could uh, keep the family line going. That was of utmost importance in that cultural context. So for Hannah, her self-image, her self-esteem, it's really bottomed out. Because socially, societally, she's seen as less than. But here's the real kicker. She wasn't Elkanah's only wife. Elkanah had another wife named Panina. And Panina had children. And we're not really given the background uh, in the book of 1 Samuel as to who came first or why Elkanah had two wives, but we know from earlier Old Testament accounts when the first wife couldn't produce a child, it wasn't uncommon to find another who could keep your line going. And this tormented Hannah. Right, it tormented her because here she was, and there was Penina, and Penina had children. And so she had status in the community and with her husband. Panina seemed loved and her unloved. And Panina, she made things worse because she actually, she rubbed it in Hannah's face. Uh, we read in chapter 1 of uh, 1 Samuel that Panina would provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her. And that this went on year after year. Every year they took these pilgrimages and, and Hannah was distraught because... There was Penina pushing into this wound of hers. Well, Elkanah, he tries to help. He sees that something's going on. He sees that Hannah's having trouble with her self-esteem, but he tries to relocate it in himself. Listen to what he says. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? And Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Not a good move, Elkanah. Not a good move. And talk about pride, right? Uh, Elkanah is telling Hannah not to base her pride in, in having a child, but to base it in his love. But that's no more reliable than her own ability to conceive because he's got another wife. 
Half the time he's paying attention to Penina, if not more, whenever she demands his attention. Whenever she sees him playing with, with her children, Penina's children, and it crushes Hannah. There's a problem underneath all of these problems, right? It's not just the polygamy or, or her barrenness that's, that's the root of the issue. It's that he, she has placed her identity on that basis, her self-worth completely in her ability to conceive. Right? That was the thing that was going to make her stand or fall in life. Elkanah's subjection, it's no help. His love is, is moving, it's changing, it's transient. And this is why psychology today in that article said not to take pride in, in your achievements or your self-image, right? Because these things are, are shifting. They're transient, they're changing. And if we don't keep them up, they might let us down or destroy our own sense of self-worth and identity. Which is why the book of Proverbs long before psychology today, warned us and said, pride cometh before the fall. And we see this play out all around us. I'll give you a few examples uh, from kind of the silliest to, to the more severe. Uh, but three examples. Uh, we, we see this happen on the football field, right? In the NFL. Guy makes a great play. He's reading the quarterback. Right? He picks the ball off. It's an interception. And the guy takes off, he's running down the field, down the sideline, he's going to score, it's going to change the outcome of the game. I mean, it, this is huge, this is critical. And what does the guy do? He takes the ball and he holds it behind him and does one of those, you know, behind the ball dances, taunting the other team. And then he slips, and he trips, and the ball pops out and then bounces into the end zone or, or into the hands of the other team, and he's blown. Pride cometh before the fall. One moment he's on the top of the world, the next moment he's fallen flat. We see it in a person who, who knows it all. A person who's based their sense of worth and identity in having something to say in every conversation. Right? They're smart, sure, but it's, it's more than that. Part of their identity has become rooted in knowing it all. And so they can never take a position of humility in, in a conversation, right? They can never actually listen to someone and maybe learn something new from someone else. Instead, they need to take control of the conversation because it makes them feel valuable and important. But over time, that wears down on the family, on the friends, maybe on the spouse. Over time, that person becomes hard to listen to. Right? They've exhausted their words, and now their words fall on deaf ears. It may have felt good in the moment to control those conversations. That might have felt powerful, but pride cometh before the fall. One more, real quick. We see it in the workaholic person who's had a history of success because they worked really hard at it and they were, they were praised for it. And, and that felt good, right? But then it became something more. It became a part of him. It's why he's worth something in the world, because of his work. 
see, that starts to trap him. Because he's either now got to, to keep outperforming himself and producing even more, or he's going to fall flat. He's, he's going to be worthless, he thinks, to the world. And, and so he pushes harder and harder in his work life, but it starts to rot at his home life and in his other relationships. And, and now he's kind of got two choices, right? He can either stick on the path and keep up this, this work life, or he can realize that it's, it's crippling him. And he can pull back from it. But if he does that, I mean, that's going to be a, a little death to die too. That's going to that's break him somewhat because he's built his identity in it. But that's a better break. That's a better break for a man. And we know that's the case because we see it in Hannah. One year Hannah's life finally broke. She still hadn't borne any children, but she had borne Penina's ridicule year after year, her mocking and her derision for far too long, and she finally just snapped. She's got a moment where she breaks down completely. The, the text says this. It says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. See, she finally realizes what she's built her life on. And she admits it. And then something incredible happens. She bears a son. But before you get hung up on that detail, there's something even more incredible that happens. She takes this son that she has given birth to, and she gives it away. She gives up the child. Oh, this child that she's been pining for all these years, that she was tormented over, how could she hand it over now? See, she finally learned what to base her pride in and her self-worth. She's not finding her comfort or her solace in her image anymore. In, in fact, when she prays that prayer, she's in Shiloh at the tabernacle. A priest sees her praying so openly and vulnerably that the priest thinks she's drunk in public, that she's been doing some day drinking. She doesn't care about her image. She doesn't care. She takes all of this and hands it over to God. She says to God in her prayer, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. So when Hannah finally does conceive, she can hand over the child. It's not ruling her heart anymore. Something else has taken her place, uh, taken its place again. Listen to her words again from her prayer. She says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. He's the only thing sure in this life. He's the only constant. Our, our image, our achievements, our status, it's a house of cards. Yahweh, he is a rock. And by the way, Penina in the story, who's kind of the villain, right? She is distressed by this, absolutely distressed, because she had made childbearing 
her source of pride, too. And things were great so long as she was the biggest fish in the sea, as long as she was on top, but, but when Hannah gave birth, all that changed. And look, we see it in, in Hannah's song and her prayer. She says, she who has many children is forlorn. She's talking about Panina. She sees this same thing in Panina, that Panina is broken now because of where her pride was based. But not Hannah. Hannah's full. And not because she had a son. She gave him up. But God heard her. And that's what the name Samuel means. The child that she gives birth to. She names him Samuel, which means God has heard. And that's enough for her. Because he is where she's located her identity and her worth. And that, my friends, is the path through pride. The way forward through this thing that we all have to deal with, struggle with. I mean, how do we avoid becoming miserable at our lack of self-esteem? And how do we avoid becoming intolerable by having too much of it? Follow Hannah. Give it over to God, whatever it is, in, in either direction. Hand it over to Him. Follow Jesus. Look at how he modeled it. Jesus, he's another priest born a couple thousand years after Samuel, the priest. From another mother who puts praise to her lips, saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Look at Jesus. Jesus didn't need human approval for his significance. He wasn't afraid to associate with, with the lowly and the outcast. He didn't care about what that did to his status. Why? Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors, they mused? Jesus wasn't worried if, if what he had to say was accepted or, or fell on deaf ears. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances. How could someone regarded as the greatest teacher of all time not care about his message landing with the people? How could he have that kind of, of confidence? Because he knew where his worth was based. He knew the Father's love. From eternity, he knew it. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Jesus knew that love. And he built his life upon it. John chapter 10, he says, The Father knows me, and I know the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. That's how close we are. Jesus knew that the Father's love was a sure thing in his life. That God would never shift or change. That his love would never fail him. And he wanted you to know it too. And that's why he gave it up. For one bitter, brutal day. Jesus gave it up and it broke him. You know his cries. And how he wept bitterly. 
But Jesus was willing to go through that so that you would know the Father's love. Always. So that you could look at a cross and rest assured that his love was true for you as well. So you could stand on a firm foundation on the rock. Now, I guess I wasn't so far off as a kid when I thought that my worth depended on what someone else said about me. It just depended upon who that person was. I pray you know the Father's love as well and that you build your life upon it because there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. In Jesus' name, amen.